You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Devorah Baum, who is a professor of English at the University of Southampton, and also a book author and filmmaker. The films that you co-directed with your husband include The New Man and one simply called Husband. And you're also the author of, of this book right here, On Marriage. I was looking for the subtitle. But <laughs> there's no subtitle. You have thousands of possible subtitles that you could have probably selected from within the text of the book. Welcome, Devora. If it had had a hello, I should say first. Hello. Um, you know, with marriage, you just leap into it. If it had had a subtitle, I would have called it On Marriage, a cover story. But my UK publisher, which is Penguin, decided no to that. <laughs> Well, you allude to the marriage plot, which is a theme that shows up repeatedly in literature. And the book talks a lot about literature, but it also talks a bit about philosophy. And what I find puzzling is how, at least within the modern novel, love, romance, and marriage play such a huge role. But in the world of philosophy, it's overlooked, right? There's not a lot of philosophers that directly address marriage. And it seems like to the extent that they do, they're not very fond of it. But how many modern philosophers were single throughout their entire lives? Nietzsche and Kant and Kierkegaard and others. And I think you, you point out that sometimes marriage is seen as a competition with philosophy <laughs> in some ways, where philosophy is the pursuit of truth right? And that marriage is somehow going to get in the way of that. Why do you suppose that is? Why is there this disconnect between literature and philosophy, at least on this topic? I mean, I think it's one of the most interesting things about marriage when you start thinking about it and reflecting on what it means and what it means to us is that it has dominated the literary canon. I mean, you can go very, very far back, but particularly in the modern period, in the period of the modern novel, but you can, of course, you can go very far back and find marriage in the Bible too, and dominating the stories we tell about our lives. And so the marriage plot is a plot until the burial plot. You know, you marry supposedly until death, or that's what you vow to do in the inaugural moment. So it's incredibly determining of narrative and of the kinds of imaginations we have, therefore, of life stories. So it leaps from narrative very much into life, and people, when they look ahead, even today, even when marriage is less likely or less fashionable for young people, still it does show up on the horizon as a possibility, as one of the kind of predictable things one might do with one's life, as a sort of shaping element in a way. And then you look over at philosophy and say, well, what do you have to say, philosophy, about this clearly very important paradigm for organizing human relationships, which covers the whole of the globe in one form or another, and which goes back as far as we can remember. I mean, we have no sort of recorded history that doesn't contain it in some form. And philosophy says, oh, I, I'm not very interested in that. <laughs> so then, of course, that does invite questions. Well, philosophy, <laughs> what is your anxiety about this issue? Philosophy isn't uninterested in love, actually. There, are, there have been some very, Plato's, one of his the foundational text of philosophy is really about love. And philosophy is very interested in death. And it's not uninterested in life. And yet this sort of life form that has claims to being the most enduring, the most successful in some ways because of how enduring it's been, 
has been not entirely ignored, but ignored sufficiently for us to start wondering about what philosophy is up to here. And the philosophers you named just then, who are famously unmarried philosophers, the unmarrying of Kierkegaard became a theme in its own right. In some ways, Kierkegaard is one of the most famous philosophers who did think about marriage, who did talk about marriage, who did write about marriage. And that was partly because he nearly married and then backed away. And in one of his, he seems to, he seems to think, he seems to discuss whether or not it's possible to be married and a philosopher and seems to think those two are incompatible, that to be a philosopher is not to be married. And to be married is necessarily not to be a philosopher. Or is some of your philosophy is somehow jeopardized by marriage. So that's why I started wondering if marriage was in competition with philosophy in some way, or, that, or, or if marriage was a different, an alternative philosophy to philosophy. And I think around that in various ways. But to answer the question about why isn't there marriage in philosophy, there is one sort of one answer that you can't ignore because, of course, particularly when women started writing philosophy books, when feminism came along, in other words, then marriage did start appearing more and more as a, as a common theme of critical works. And when you look at queer theory in various domains within philosophy that are more contemporary in a way, where people felt that they were left out of this institution or the institution didn't service them in some way, were serving somebody else's in interest, or in other words, it was a, a traditional and patriarchal institution, then you get people thinking about marriage because they've had to. So there is one suspicion, which is that philosophers ignored it because it was in their interest to do so. And the philosophers who took it on, like Kierkegaard, to some extent, Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and uh, Kant, other than Kierkegaard, none of them really made it a privileged subject within their works. It was always a subsidiary subject. But those who really did think about it didn't do it, as though thinking about it and doing it again were incompatible in some way. And then there are other philosophers who felt you could be married and a philosopher just so long as you you kept your extramarital affairs <laughs> going in, in your free time. There, there was a way to be a married philosopher, and that was through having affairs, seemingly. So that was Hegel's, I, I think, idea about it. Well, that's because I think love and romance and marriage were seen as separate things for most of our history. There's never been a time when marriage has not been part of the human experience, at least as far as we know, as far as we go back in, in written records. But this idea of love or love marriages, that's a relatively new thing. It's always existed, but it's never been the dominant kind of reason for marriage, or at least it hasn't gone along with marriage. And I like how you set this up where you say that love was disruptive to the institution of marriage for most of our history. And it's only now that we see marriage as potentially disruptive to love, right? <laughs> I mean, that seems to be a, a theme that appears in more recent literature, right? Yeah, I found it's just a nice irony that I suppose I noticed if you look at, yeah, go back to the plots of Shakespeare or so on, you see that because this was the period in which the love match was beginning to sort of Romeo and Juliet are still our sort of archetypal lovers. They are the love matches. And they didn't want to marry whom their parents chose. And so our sort of ideal and our dream and our great romance of love is Romeo and Ju Juliet, who, who, whose sort of love affair is incompatible with a sanctioned, approved marriage. They marry, but the world doesn't approve their marriage. And so they, they die. And as, those, as though that marriage has no future, that love. And, and so I think something about our idea and our dream of love is a bit distrustful of marriage because marriage to be successful and to be sustained is the sort of third. The world comes in and says, yes, you two can be, we can get along with you. The world gives its blessing to the couple 
and says, yeah, we can work with you. So some, something about that seems to sort of pollute the sort of ideal purity that the lovers imagine they have with each other is sort of two against the world. And that is our vision of romance. And in Shakespeare, you see in the comedies as well as the tragedies that, um, and I, the one I look at particularly as Midsummer Night's Dream is sort of young lovers wanting to choose for themselves against the wishes of the sovereign, against the wishes of the father and so on, to choose for themselves. And the state and the family have their own interests to be served here. Love comes along and seems to create real problems, real headaches for marriage. Until at a certain point, some historians think it's sort of late 18th century. And again, we can think about the novel coming into being alongside this. But along comes the love match as the sort of the new sacred, as the way in which you have you now have to begin you now have to say whereas previously you have to say i'm marrying him i assure you for convenience love has nothing to do with it you don't need to worry it's not about love then at some point you had to turn that around and say i couldn't care less about my comfort or my convenience <laughs> or what makes economic sense i happen to have fallen in love with someone very very wealthy and so on so suddenly the sort of cover story m- moves around and and you have to say you're in love and you might have these other interests hiding smuggled in in the wings of it Somehow, one way or another, whatever foot you put forward, there's normally something in the shadows when it comes to marriage. Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering if now there's more of an overlap between sort of romance and theology, right? Because you talk about monotheism morphs into monogamy and faith morphs into fidelity and oaths morph into vows and the afterlife morphs into kind of happily ever after. But even in Shakespeare plays that end with weddings, there's always some doubt as to whether or not the happily ever after is actually going to happen. I mean, that's true in the, in the rom-coms as well. I mean, you have a whole section on rom-coms and they always end more or less with the wedding. And we're, we're supposed to presume, you know, happily ever after, but that's sort of when the hard part begins. And that's why I think, again, even though I just made a case and we just discussed the fact that marriage has been dominant in literature, but it's been fairly absent from philosophy. The marriage plot in literature does tend to end at the wedding, or at least it certainly does in the kind of English literature and English canon that that I grew up on, with glorious exceptions from Jane Austen's Middlemarch as a kind of marriage epic that that is after the nuptials for the most looks at what happens actually within marriages, not not just in the drama, the psychodramas that take place before them. But over if you look over in France, you get much or or in Russia you get you do get the sort of post nuptial, but those are the novels of adultery on the whole. Those are the stories of marriages going wrong. So there seems to be, although marriage has colonized our imaginations and our sense of narrative, there's also a kind of real block, a veil that comes down post-nuptially where we can't really imagine anything happening after that. So there's the excitement of getting together. And then what? And then it's sort of, that's the happy ever after. And it's very hard to hear a phrase like that with thinking, well, that sounds like death. I mean, that just sounds like endless nothing. And so one play I look at is Beckett's Happy Days, which is, you know, Beckett is the great dramatist of people sort of stuck in a barren wasteland. And these are the happy days of a couple who are just was the dirt is coming up. It's not the best date night, I have to say, having <laughs> gone to see a Happy Days. You tried it? I, yeah, I did. It wasn't the, not a great date night, I have to say. Not a great date night for you. It was, for me, I write about this in the book, it was the, one of the most painful theatrical experiences I've ever been to because it was just after lockdown. And so we had been locked down with each other, seeing nobody but ourselves and our children for a very long time, like most of the world. And this was the, our first foray into the world after that. 
And so we went to see Happy Days, which again is because also Happy Days is a bit like Zoom, a bit like this kind of technology. So the upper part of the body is presentable to some extent. And what's going on below, as we saw during lockdown, the squalor beneath that is rising, arising. And so we went to the theater to watch Happy Days, my husband and I, our first date night after lockdown. And the seating in the theater was standalone chairs and they'd been put so that you were in your, just in your social, socially distant seating. So you could tell that we were locked down together watching this lockdown couple on stage. And it was just excruciatingly painful to see ourselves mirrored by Beckett. And everybody, I suppose, in the theater was having a, a strange, uncanny experience. And that's why they portrayed it. But Beckett does show that there's something locked down about marriage that you have to endure. And uh, he exposes it to a kind of sense of, okay, unto death, exposes you to a kind of forceful brush with mortality in a way, even as we speak about the sort of immortality of love and the happy ever after. So he's one source. And the other, again, quite a deathly source that interests me quite a lot in the book is uh, A Thousand and One Nights and the story of Sherazade. But Sherazade is the bride for whom the real drama happens post-nuptialine, not before. So she, you know, she, things seem fairly uneventful in her life until she gets married, at which point she has to not just sing for her supper, but she has to narrate it. She has to make the afterlife of marriage a very, very interesting one, a narrative one, because she will die if she doesn't. And so she's sort of my heroine in the book, somebody who's who understands the existential stakes of not making your postnuptial period at least as narrative and exciting and dramatic as the prenuptial period. Well, yeah, I mean, you allude to a number of commentators who say that marriage is like a conversation, right? And, you know, Nietzsche, I think, said when you get married, you have to ask yourself, is this the person that I can see myself having a conversation with, you know, for the rest of my life. And I think you referenced at one point in the book, you talk about how when you go to a restaurant and you see a couple and they're sitting there silent, right? And a lot of people are like, I don't want, I don't want to be like them. Other people will say, oh, that's great. They're comfortable with each other. They don't need to entertain each other. To what extent, and I think at the end of the book, you alluded to someone who compared marriage to poetry. And so to, to what extent is, does marriage need to be a conversation and not an argument. <laughs> I think that was Milton's distinction, right? I think, yeah, I think Milton missed the pleasure of quarreling. And because there's a novelist, an American novelist, Norman Rush, who I think is a novelist, again, who's taken the postnuptial seriously and who's really interested in the possibilities. I mean, I think he's somebody who is just been very fortunate in his own marriage in some ways and has found nourishment and, and narrative based on his own experiences that he's drawn into novelistic form. But he's very interested in that sort of that idea of a conversation between two people that is kind of looking to find that balance, looking to find that balance where to see if the utopian dream of a marriage as a marriage of true minds, of equals, is really possible. And so in a way, it sort of all gets off with the quarrel. So, so the quarrel sort of is right there at the start. We disagree. You think this and I think that. And actually, but in love and in a good marriage, that disagreement and that quarrel is the pleasure principle. Being constantly proven wrong by somebody 
can be sexy and it can be educational, but it feels like something real is happening and it moves you forward and it carries on. Milton's, you know, had a pretty, he, he was very progressive in lots of ways, not least in his tract on divorce and so on. But he, yeah, he believed that woman was there as a helpmate for the great man. And so he felt that she should not be an equal in status or in intellect. And so although he, I think, was ahead of the, his times in saying that, that marriage should provide a meet and happy conversation, it's quite hard for me to imagine what a meet and happy conversation could be like if one doesn't feel that there's equality going on between those two minds, which he evidently thought would lead to quarrels and so disapproved of. But yeah, he certainly felt that a marriage that doesn't provide a meet and happy conversation is bound to fail. And I suppose I suspect the same, but I've only sampled my own marriage and, and had a look at a few others. And the ones that interest me most, I can see a kind that they are sparring partners in a way. I can see that sort of meet and happy conversation. But on the other hand, the extraordinary thing about a marriage and the kind of sort of world of significance it sort of conjures between the people who've been in it, particularly over a long time, is that everything becomes part of the conversation. So there's a, a film by the British filmmaker Joanna Hogg called Exhibition, in which the married couple in it aren't getting on very well and they don't really speak to each other. But you can tell when you watch this film that when one of them run, runs up and down the stairs or turns on a tap or closes a door, that the other one gets what they're saying. So, so the house itself, every noise made, is communicating something when you have that kind of intense intimacy. Yeah, I'd forgotten about Norman Rush and I'd read his books maybe 30 years ago and probably informed my view of, of a good marriage somehow subconsciously, right? But it seems to suggest that there's like an optimal level of difference, right? Or that at least marriage serves as a crucible in which people learn how to navigate difference, right? And in that sense, it helps one to become a, a better citizen if one can somehow craft a successful marriage. And, and I think you talk about Vico, and I had forgotten also about Vico. I read Vico a long time ago, and I've, I'd forgotten that he had placed marriage at such a central place in his philosophy, which was relatively rare. So how does the marriage unit serve as a building block for society? And to what extent does marriage, the type of marriage that is considered normative in a society, say something about the society more generally? Well, I think we can look at this in, there's a left and a right to, to, to this. To the, the, Vico is a very good example of the philosopher who, who, I mean, he really felt that the social contract is founded on the marriage contract. And actually, I think he wasn't wrong. And if you look pretty much in most, at most social contracts that are current, that you can see around the world, I think there is a connection there. That the marriage is being used to stabilize something in society or to provide a kind of social glue. And there is a fairly cynical way in which you could look at that. Marriage is about marshalling a certain kind of resources. It's about orderly inheritance. It's about making sure that what otherwise perhaps the state would have to pay for, like the labor of social reproduction, is made private and is brought indoors and, and a lot of care work that goes on there and so on. And then you overlay that with the language of love and altruism and duty in the family and you get away with stuff. So we can see that these are the conditions that have allowed 
the private life of the marriage to keep the state or the society well-oiled and running without having to pay some people uh, or even recognize their labor because it's what they want to do naturally and so on, and, and that's love. So that's one, I suppose, argument that one might want to bring against marriage. And there are philosophers who, like British philosopher Claire Chambers, who's very eager to cut off that contract between marriage and the state because she thinks it, it, it is one of the reasons why some people are rendered legitimate, others are not, and all kinds of social injustice she thinks thrives because of that connection. But there is, I think, what you were just gesturing towards, another more radical way in which we can think about this social norm that is marriage, which comes closer again to that sort of romantic idea that we have of opposites attracting. And in the world, as we see it, when opposites encounter each other, they don't get on and they come into conflict and they can often become quite murderous. And we see a world increasingly, I would say, where just the very fact that somebody thinks something different to you can make you murderous, can, can make you feel you need to destroy them and everything they think. And yet... Yeah, I don't know if you've seen this. There are studies that show that people are now, at least in the United States, unwilling to marry someone of a different political party, right? Much more so than in the past. But in a, it's very interesting. So in a way, politics now inhabits the place religion used to inhabit in that. We still have one of these sort of systems, but no way could I ever and so on. And listen, I, I would find it hard to, I don't agree with my husband on most things. We quarrel about everything, but politics does have this sort of weird sort of psychic kind of problem for me where I, it was like, it scares me to imagine that he would have very different political views. Again, it's linked to power and, and all kinds of tribes and associations, but in the romantic mythos, we have this idea, this dream of marriage, where you can be opposite and you can make peace with your differences. And the sort of the conclusion of a romantic comedy, ideally, or the kind of romantic comedies I have, is not one where there was a master-slave sort of battle going on and then eventually one triumphed and the other one said, no, you were right all along and I was wrong all along. What makes it feel romantic and alluring is we imagine the argument continuing after the wedding Two, because we saw how much pleasure it brought them beforehand. So you can make peace with your differences, which isn't a peace that doesn't have conflict in it, but it's a peace in which the conflict can be not only endured, but to some extent enjoyed and is a source of respect and a mutual education and indeed edification. So I think that sort of idea that in their private lives, in the cauldron of their private lives, people are working out how to coexist with differences and conflicts, surely that has to be a good thing for the whole world if people are becoming more imaginative about those things privately. One of the texts that you discuss is Fiddler on the Roof. And that's another text that I hadn't thought about in a long time, although I think it's been revived recently. And I had completely missed the whole plot that you articulate, right? Where, you know, it's a very progressive play in a way, right? Because it, ultimately, the father is allowing these love marriages. He draws a line at marrying a, <laughs> outside of the religion, but at least he begins to give way with respect to the marriage of his offspring. And they're all going to move off to America and be happy ever after, right? I think one of the one of the things about, I'm, I base it mostly on, on the film. I actually, I'm, I'm not sure I've ever seen it staged as a play. I guess it's the same 
script. And of course, originally it was a Yiddish story. But the the thing I think is, and it seems to be, although it's from this small shtetl Jewish world in in Ukraine, you know, despite the fact that would seem to be quite an insular type of world. And of course, it's about the old world being invaded by the new world in the forms of or new ideas or modernity that particularly the rise of the love match in this patriarchal old-fashioned very orthodox religious community but there's other modern sort of genies entering the shtetl and that includes communism as one is one of them capitalism is another one of them and then fascism is the one that sort of destroys destroys the the shtetl in the way and the growing sort of nationalism of that period but so the old sort of fashions, small world is being torn down. But the main sort of energy of, of the play or the film is that love is starting to do its sort of mischief in the shtetl. And so in some ways, it's about young women, again, saying, no, daddy, I, I want to choose my own life. I want to choose who I want to love and so on. And one chooses the budding entrepreneur and another chooses the revolutionary communist. And then the one who chooses the Christian doesn't get the father's uh, blessing in the end. Although in, in the film version, we hear Tevier muttering beneath his breath on the daughter who's married out, you know, God be with you. So, you know, we know he, he does secretly give her the blessing in our movie, our Hollywood movie version of that. But what I think is kind of extraordinary about that plot is we're, in the way we're used to seeing that story, the story of modern love from the position of the young woman who's trying to go out and get it against these authorities. But in that play, we see the patriarch just really fractured. You know, he's the one who looks to screen, who's appealing to us saying, what am I meant to do? He's the one who's appealing to God, to us. He's very confused and he's very charismatic. And even though we disapprove of everything he thinks, we love him. Uh, and so I think he encapsulates a lot of the sort of historical contradictions. We're still undergoing right now, but with that not sufficient sort of sensitivity to the fact that, you know, these patriarchs who we're tearing down, we also love them and we love that old world. And so there's something in the energy of that film and that play that I think speaks to us now, which is why it keeps getting restaged despite its old world sort of story. Now, you also reference Live in Us, right? And this idea of the angel. And in decision theory, which is more my domain, people talk about satisficing. And I just did a podcast recently where we talked about the difference between trying to make the right choice and trying to make the choice right. And it seems like love marriage is about the former. Arranged marriages are more of the latter. But it seems like every marriage, there's sort of a leap of faith, right? And some things are going to be different from what you expected, right? And and you, you talk about the, the metaphor of the veil and how you know, you might be marrying someone different than you thought you were. And to some extent, everyone does because people change and people reveal themselves over time. To what extent is marriage about learning to make one's choice right? I don't know. Having that kind of wisdom that you just articulated seems to me to be a good way in. That if you think that you're marrying someone in order to have the same person forever, think again. Actually, you might have a better chance of having the same person again and again if you're a Casanova, you know, because then you can just keep getting the same one, a version of the same one. You'll never get to know them well enough anyway to know where they differ. So, so. Who's that Hollywood, the Hollywood actor that is like, as soon as the, his mate achieves a certain age, he, he 
trades are in for a new one, right? Yeah, and we know we all know which actor you're referring to. <laughs> and it's interesting that particular if it is the actor I'm thinking of, that particular actor I think was became very famous very young, and so probably did get sort of stuck at that age, stuck at that age in their own development, in in some ways, and is unable to sort of. They say that about fame that you sort of get arrested at the age when it happens to you. But yeah, the repetition, compulsion of the sort of Don, Don Juan or so on, it seems like they're sort of moving through difference. But no, they seem to be stuck on the same thing. Whereas marriage is a commitment to difference. It's not a commitment to the same. Your, your, your commitment, you're, you're committing to somebody who will change. In the, ver- the very least, their body will change. They will age. And, and yet, again, this is the romantic and beautiful thing we can say about people who grow old together is... People you see every single day, they simply don't age in the same way as people you see once a year, once a decade. You retain, I think, a sense of something youthful in them because everything is new in aging for you all the time. You're going through this now, that now, this now, and you're doing it together and negotiating it together. And there's something, you see your body's aging, you see each other's body's aging. More and more, it becomes about attending to the various parts of the bodies that, that are going wrong. But there's something childlike about it that characterizes, I think, that kind of relationship if it's sort of maturing over time. And in terms of the sort of leap of faith or the reason I turned to Levinas is because if we are looking at marriage as a sort of competition for philosophy, what Levinas says is that the secret of the angels is that uh, unlike the philosopher who perfectly sensibly, reasonably, rationally says, if you have a decision to make, you think, and look at the choices, and then you decide. And, you know, the stereotype of the philosopher is not for nothing someone who is unable to make any decisions or do anything practically because they can't, there's so many possibilities and they can't make a decision because they're thinking, thinking, thinking all the time. And so, sort of, Levinas's theory is in order to sort of enter life, in order to have a sort of be active, you might have to do it like the angel does, which is, first of all, make the decision. And then once you've done that, have a think about it. <laughs> Do you think it was a good one, a bad one? So in other words, marriage is something you can't know it without doing it. Mm-hmm. You quote Stanley Cavell, who is a philosopher who has discussed marriage quite a bit. I think he, he was the one that said that marriage is like a form of perpetual childhood to some degree, right? Yeah, he's, he's not alone, by the way, in saying this. But he's not alone. And actually, it's so interesting to find these tropes repeating. He's not alone in saying marriage is a perpetual childhood. He's not alone in saying that marriage is conversation. He's not alone either in saying that it all begins with a quarrel. (laughs) But the fact that that those who do think about marriage seem to come across these same motifs is interesting. And particularly if you read memoirs or testimonies of people about their marriage, this gets, these kinds of ideas keep coming up again. The idea we're children together, we're always children together. It's all about the conversation and so on. But you also talk about revealing and concealing and how every marriage has its secrets. And of course, we see this in literature that you talk about Javier Marius's book, right? And what do you suppose that is? Is it a fear that if someone knew you completely, they wouldn't love you or appreciate you to some degree? Is it because everyone creates fictions around the ones that they love and they want to maintain those fictions? Why are secrets I mean, it would seem like in the ideal, you would not have any secrets at all in these types of relationships. That's the, the sort of ludicrous ideal, isn't it? That, that there's simply nothing another person wouldn't know about me. I come from such an old-fashioned type of family and background. I often feel like 
I showed up in this century, but I was born in the late 19th century. <laughs> but, but, but I was. Hey, I, I'm from the 18th, so I got you beat. <laughs> I, so I'm younger than you, so it's, <laughs> but I've got 100 years later. But essentially, I, I had those sort of whisperings to me as a let, things like never let your husband see you shave your legs or something. <laughs> I mean, and, so, and listen, I'm pretty private within my private life. Well, that, but I mean, that's, that's, that means there's an element of theatricality, right? To some degree. There's a theatricality. It isn't that behind closed doors, everybody who lives with me gets to see or know everything. They don't. I remain pretty private for somebody who's written, who made films about her marriage and <laughs> written books detailing aspects of her marriage. I'm actually, you know, I, it's, I'm not on social media and I am certainly very private about various things within my home. But there's a real argument between the philosophers who have considered this and the psychoanalysts about the role and the place of secrets. And for example, Sartre and de Beauvoir, who had this notoriously, they weren't officially married, but were very committed to each other, but had these contingent lovers, these other lovers. And they said they could do all that and they could have this sort of very French open marriage in, in the sense that uh, because they were fully transparent and they would share every single secret. And that was how, and, you know, in some of, particularly in de Beauvoir's writings, you see how much pain that caused her, that, that, you know, how kind of frantic it was, but it did work. It seemed to work for them. Too. And then you get more recent couples like Soler and Kristeva, who are married, who say they're very different to their later French intellectuals, very different to de Beauvoir and, and Sartre because they keep their secrets. But I, the more I sort of looked at what they were saying about their marriage, I thought, you haven't, you don't really keep your secrets because we all know what those secrets are, right? No, we know the secrets are the lovers. So it's like we don't tell each other about the lovers, but we, they do know what each other's secrets are. Are. And in other words, when you've said I've kept a place for secrecy, but we sort of know what the secret is that, you know, I don't know to what extent. So I'm much more interested. Well, it's, it's not so much. So it's not so much you keep it secret. It's just that you don't discuss it. Right. They don't discuss it. They don't discuss it. But then I know I uh, listen. I'm I think I'm partly I'm committed to my monogamous marriage because I think I'm a jealous lover. And, and I, I essentially couldn't really I couldn't really cope. So, so whether I was told or not told. So far at this stage in my life, I think I'm probably like just, I, I'm probably, I don't know, morally inferior to those people who can share. And I seem not to be able to. So my contract is a monogamous one. But having said that, one of the reasons I love the Javier Marias novel is he's very attentive to A, the way in which he, in that novel, we get this quotation actually that, that marriage is a narrative institution. And so if it is a mar- narrative institution, to be faithful within your marriage, you have to keep narrating. And then if you're narrating, you're choosing at all times what becomes part of the shared story and what doesn't. And of course, there are always decisions you're making. You can't narrate everything in a life. You're always making decisions about what comes in and what I will tell you when I go out into the world and come back and tell you. And which little things happen to me that I'm just going to keep to myself. And little sort of moments between frissons, between me and other people that might be sexual, might just be the beginning of a kind of relationship might not be sexual, or but the, the beginning of a kind of relationship that I don't necessarily want to bring back home and I don't necessarily want to share. And so I'm, in a way, I'm adulterating my marriage the entire time, even if I'm not jumping into bed with other people. In a way, by making that marriage a narrative institution or understanding it in those terms, we become aware of our own censoring of our lives and the story we're making into a shared story and the little private stories we're keeping just for ourselves. 
Now, you, you talk also about how every marriage is in some way a separation, right? And I guess this goes back to Vico, but you know, at the wedding ceremony, you're more or less saying, okay, we're now no longer part of this broader community. And you, know, you get in the car and you drive away, right? And you're putting some distance. And when that world comes back in, it somehow pollutes the marriage to some degree. But everyone gets married for a variety of reasons. You, you said that when you interviewed people, nobody said they got married for love. I mean, a lot of people get married because they, they want to have children. And you talked about how parenthood doesn't really factor into all the discussions about marriage, but that's really why people get married for the most part, right? Because they want to have children. And yet this intruder comes in and sort of disrupts the relationship that was created through the marriage. So first of all, I guess, why does parenthood feature so weakly in literature? And then why is it that it somehow strengthens or weakens right, marriage when it happens? I suppose this for me would be one of the primary cover stories that's marriage that officially, I mean, we can hear the relationship between matrimony and maternity and is very distinctly link in the social contract that this is where it all goes on. You get married in order to sort of make legitimate children together and then everything's done very orderly and we know who everyone is and who's going to take care of them and whose name they will carry. But that's the cover story. So officially, people are marrying in order to create children, but unofficially and actually they're marrying in order to be able to withdraw from the world, separate from the world, but they have to strive and be adult and be very respectable and so on behind closed doors where they're officially sanctioned to go because everybody says marriage is a very respectful thing to do. That's where they become children and that's where they regress. I really can't imagine a happy couple who aren't regressed in some way in relationship with you, who aren't just going behind closed doors and still being very adult the entire time. If they're making the most of it, they've found a place in order to be sort of to be children again themselves, to baby each other, to regress, to be in the home and to enjoy their kind of infantile sexualities. So it's not for nothing, I think, that the writers, the novelists who've been very interested in the marital relationship have found it hard to make place for the parent-child relationship when thinking about the spousal relationship. And it's not for nothing that married couples very often find it hard to make space for their children within their own relationship. And there is no doubt that if people get married to have children, they may well find, if that's the reason they did it, that when the children come along, they break up. Because if that's really the only thing that you did it for, those children are going to come very much between you. It's very hard to take the sort of paradise of two people attending to each other's needs and then bring in a third, a fourth, or however many others. It's a complicating factor. And more complicated, it's more complicated for the child who really, really doesn't need to come into the world feeling they're here to make a marriage work, or they're here to, to sort of uh, justify this relationship that they've found themselves the child of. And children, I think, carry a lot of weight very often to feel responsible. As we know this with children of divorcees, that they very often feel that they're responsible for the broken marriage. But I think children of married people often feel they're responsible for the marriage. Now, you talk a lot about rom-coms and you say that they're on the decline, <laughs> is the, the quality of the rom-coms. First of all, have you ever thought of making a rom-com with your husband? What would that look like? And it seems like the kind of decline of rom-coms has occurred around the same time as we've seen this massive rise in pornography. Right. Correlation doesn't mean causation, but is there some connection between those two shifts in people's viewing habits? 
I, I, I would guess so. I have made a rom-com. I, uh, the first movie we made together about our marriage, The New Man, is actually about what we were just speaking about. It's about a child entering a, a, our relationship and more or less nearly destroying it. <laughs> and and, and the, the second film we made together, Husband, I think has been viewed as, and I think we sort of deliberately made it, in a, it's a familiar film in a way, if you like those sort of 70s rom-coms. It's a couple of people in New York bickering with each other with the jazz soundtrack. So you know the kind of movies. He's particularly neurotic in the film but because I don't like to show as my true colors nearly as much. But the logic of the film is close to what Stanley Cavell would call a remarriage comedy. In other words, we're married at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film, we're still married, but we've slightly changed or that there's been a slight shift in our relationship so he said something to the effect what only those who are married can become married he says only those who are already married can marry yes something like that it it was a when you realize you should marry when you realize you're married or when you realize and and this for him becomes actually i think a version of one way to read it is you should divorce if you can actually so it's not the words if you should marry when you realize we're helplessly married. We can't but be married. We are married, so we might as well marry. Then it implies, actually, that you should divorce if you find that you could just as easily be apart as together. Because in some ways, working in a sort of Mil- Miltonian tradition, and Milton was very keen that, that it should be a true marriage, a marriage of you know, what Shakespeare, a true marriage was very important to Milton because a bad marriage would be a sacrilege to him. And he really felt that should be annulled. And I think Cavell's version of that is that a sort of, in a way, a marriage by choice. <laughs> well, a marriage that, that could, if you could just as easily not be married, then that's no marriage. That's no true marriage for Cavell. But then under that view, it's just uh, labeling. It's not uh, creating. It's just a recognition of something that is already there rather than putting into place something that wasn't fully there. Well, I wouldn't say that's an empty gesture to recognize what's already there and to invite the world in, again, to invite the third in, say, oh, we've realized this about ourselves. And in a way, it's like, you should come in, have a look at this world, because this relationship that we've established with each other, which is quite unique, it's to do with the two of us. We think it's working now. We think it's got endurance. We think it's got the power to go off into the future. And we would like you to give your nod to it, Well, because in a way, every relationship that works is adding something to the world, a working relationship. And, and it will always be, especially if it's, a ha- you know, he's talking about happiness. His book is called The Pursuits of Happiness. It's something we have figured out. We've solved the happiness issue between us with all our differences, with all our problems, with all our neuroses, with all our difficulties and our conflicts. We've got a working relationship. And so we think, well, you should come and give this your blessing. And so I think it's not an empty gesture. I think it's a very important one. So getting back to the decline of rom-coms, what accounts for that? Are we losing some faith? Are we losing faith in this romantic religion that we created to replace the old religions? I mean, I think when you say that the pornography has perhaps damaged our love lives, I would I don't, maybe you didn't say that, but I I would say that. I think I know some people, certainly not me, but I know some people watch pornography with other people and try to make it a communal thing, but whatever. I think most people are doing it alone. And I I think it's a kind of, it's a lonely, I think quite solipsistic type of engagement, which is disembodied. And in a way, it seems to be about being an ogler, but not being in relationship 
to the other, but trying to have control, power over the whole scene, to be the, to be the sort of master of everything and not risk oneself in a certain way, in the way that love and relationships demand a certain kind of risk. And a uh, New York journalist, Wesley Morris, who's written about the difference between the rom-com and pornography, uh, rom-coms do get watched, they do get watched together and watch together and, and learn something about relationships that look like they won't work, but ultimately they do. And of course, the rom-com has reached, really needs recharging with more imagination, not just in the sense that it shouldn't just be wealthy white individuals getting together, which is one of the problems with the form, but, and it needs a more diverse range of characters and a diverse range of relationships that you can make love out of. But I think it's also maybe a little bit that it's absorbed the kind of logic of pornography that it thinks it knows its audience and thinks it knows exactly how to hit every beat and where its own money shots are. And it makes money and it's cynical about that money making in the same way, in a way the, the wedding industry is quite cynical about these sorts of affairs. But it can be, and I has been in its golden ages, the most imaginative of genres because it's trying to work out how people who might not get on can love each other. Now, you said something in the book that when you told your friends you were writing a book on marriage, you kind of surveyed them <laughs> and asked them, both single and married, why did you get married or why would you get married or why do people get married? And you got a range of responses. Did you... Presumably, you were asking folks in academia and, you know, in circles that, that you freak, in maybe filmmaking circles. Were people taken aback by this question? I mean, one would think that all of us would have thought carefully about these decisions. It wasn't just intellectuals, academics, filmmakers. I asked as many different people as I could at first. I was because I was really flummoxed. Like the publisher had proposed a book on marriage to me. And then I realized I didn't know what I thought about it. And I wondered what everybody else thought about it. And then I realized they didn't know either. And that became one of the most intriguing sort of ways to begin this, that is something so many people I know have done. So many people seem to have a sort of knee-jerk reaction to that. They think they know what they think about it, but you ask them to really think about it. And they, they become confused, or particularly if they were married, they became sort of adult and ashamed of their, like, reach. I felt they were reaching for a kind of answer to paper over there. And, and it's, they always seem like guesses. Oh, I did it for security. Oh, no, I did it because nobody said love. It seemed, I think they thought that was like I would catch them out if they said love. I think maybe secretly it was love very often for the answer they married for love, but they, it seemed like they thought that was the wrong answer or was that, that there couldn't be that I would sort of go, uh-huh. You, so it was fascinating. And But one of the main things I noticed was when I said I'm running on marriage and I want to ask you, I just saw a look of sort of terror and sort of face lots of, it's like a trigger term, like, oh no. <laughs> it was easier for people who knew exactly what they thought. They were against it very often. Uh, so I'm against marriage for the following reasons. But it was the people who weren't against it, who didn't quite know why they were for it, that I found most intriguing. And then there was a really fascinating thing I noticed, which is when I asked single people, because as I said in the book, married people don't own marriage. It's a very all-pervasive institution, and it's very determining for all lives and all statuses in a coercive and not very nice way, including people who are single or divorced. And so when I, when I asked them why people marry, why they thought, they were the ones who said love. <laughs> they were the ones who were still sort of holding the torch for love. And I think for other people, their love lives remained under the veil of marriage, very much their private lives, and they weren't ready to share them with me. 
Now, you didn't use this quote. I forget who was. Maybe you'll know who said this, What that marriage is like a birdcage. Those on the inside want out and those on the outside want in. I don't know that quote. It's a very good quote. You don't remember who said it? No, I, I should look it up. But, but uh, I guess one question I would have is, do you think that we need more movies like the Linklater series, like Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage? Do you think we need more books like Middlemarch, where you follow these relationships longitudinally, right? That they don't just end at the happily ever after marriage. I would say so because I really think one of the great malaises, I would even say diseases of contemporary culture is a culture of self-righteousness, of people feeling that they have to be right all the time and about everything. And I think there's no pleasure in it. And I think they can be reminded by these kind of cultural productions that being in relationship with others isn't about being right all the time. In fact, you can't be, and just to be in perpetual agreement with the people you hang out with isn't to be in any kind of relationship at all. Well, Devorah, thank you so much. This has been great. The book is called On On Marriage. Definitely check it out if you like literary criticism, if you like philosophy, if you like genreless, interesting essays, check it out. And also check out the films, Husband and... What was the other one? The New Man. The New Man. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. We'll talk again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.